The story is told of the two gas company employees who were uh, going about their route. One was a senior training a supervisor. The other was a young trainee. They were out checking meters as they always did. And uh, they were out in a suburban area. They would park their truck down one end of the block. And then they would walk through that the course of the neighborhood. And so as they were getting through the end of the day, uh, or the middle of the day, the older man said, the younger man said, hey, listen, you know, I'll, I'll bet you lunch that I can beat you back to the truck. And so sure enough, they go running down this road, and they're just running as fast as they can. And next thing they know, they hear this lady who's just huffing and puffing and breathing right behind them, and they can't figure out what in the world's going on. So they stop dead in their tracks. They turn around. They said, ma'am, is everything okay? What can we do for you? And she said, well, I was looking out the window, and one minute you're reading my meter, and the next thing I know, you were running as fast as you can. And when I see two meter men, gas men, running as fast as they can, I figure I better run too. And she just followed him down the alley. And I was reminded of that story uh, as I was reading through Romans chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Romans chapter 2, where uh, I'll explain to you what I was thinking. In Romans chapter 2, starting with verse 17, we read these words. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will he not who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, it's great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Well, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? 
But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported as having some affirmed that we said, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. In this particular passage, it's, it's a carryover to the fact that all through the book of Romans, for those who might not be familiar with it, the book of Romans, Paul lays out an argument, a very strong argument, that every one of us come into this world at enmity with God. There isn't anyone who's not guilty before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. And so God judges us based on the fact that every one of us come into this world, as it says in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, that we're all sinners, and because we're born into the world sinners, then our actions indicate who we really are. You know, we don't, we're not born into the world at peace with God, good people, and then somewhere along the line, we, we have to make decisions which direction we're going to go. The Bible teaches completely the opposite, that eventually our true colors come to light because as sinners, we sin. That's just the byproduct of what we're all about as far as our nature is concerned. So when, when Paul lays out this argument, he wants us to understand that none of us are innocent before God. And if you'll turn back to Romans chapter 1, he gives three reasons, starting with verse 18, why what we'll call Gentiles are guilty before God. <clears throat> and the best way to look at that would be, you know, Gentiles are those unbelievers without the Bible. You know, if you ever wondered how, you know, how does God judge people that never heard about Jesus? That's a good question. How does God just judge people who have never read the Bible? How does God judge people that never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? And in this particular passage, we get the answer very clearly. Because what Paul writes is this. For the wrath of God, or the judgment of God, in verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And so God judges all of us in this world by the fact that he has given us a conscience. And in this conscience, we're aware of those things that are, quote, right, and those things that are wrong. And he says it very clearly. He, he says that it's evident within us. God made it evident to us. And the problem is, is that God judges us because we suppress that truth. The word suppress means to fight it. You know, it's evident, it's obvious, we know it, and yet we fight it. We fight it as if, you know, it's not the truth. And so what he's saying is that God has put in the heart of every human being this God-given consciousness or this conscience that we know the difference between right or wrong, and when we want to do what's wrong, we just go ahead and do it anyway. We suppress the truth. And the truth is we know what is right, but we still want to do that which is wrong, and so we will suppress the truth, and because we suppress the truth, we are found guilty before God. And you say, well, is that fair? Well, you know what? Apparently it is because that's what God tells us, that he tells us what is right and he tells us what is wrong, and we have a choice of whether to believe him or not, and the world chooses to suppress that truth. 
Yeah, I, I know. You know, yes, people. You know, was that right or wrong? Well, it's wrong. Well, why did you do it? Well, because I wanted to. And it's not that bad. And everybody else is doing it. So we just kind of jump in with, you know, we suppress the truth like everybody else does. Now, the second thing is, it says in verses 20 through 23, you know, Gentiles are guilty before God, not only because they suppress the truth, that which is known within us is evident within us, but the second thing is that we ignore the obvious. Notice in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible, speaking of God, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Notice what he's saying is that it's clearly seen in verse 20. All you got to do is look around at God's creation and realize that there is a creator. And what God says is the reason that man is guilty before God is because, one, we suppress the truth. God has given us a conscience that says that's wrong, and we do it anyway. And the second thing is we ignore the obvious. All you got to do is look around at the world and go, man, you know what? It is amazing what we see. You know, and yet we ignore the obvious, that which is clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that we are without excuse. The Bible says the heavens declare the handiwork of God, that all one has to do is look around and go, wow, this is awesome. Look at this earth. Look at this solar system. Look at the stars. Look at the sky. Look at everything that's been created. And we just look at it. And God is, is saying as loudly as possible, look, you know, look at all of this. How did it all get here? See, his, you know, it says that we became futile in our speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. One of the things that we need to recognize and understand is this. When man chooses to seek God, God will reveal more light to that person seeking him. Whosoever seeks the Lord will not be disappointed. So if you're seeking God, God will continue to give you more information about who he is. For those who deny God and seek darkness, then God says, well, it's just going to get darker in your life. You know, you, you want darkness? I'll show you darkness, and we'll see that in a minute. But a good example of that is, is that I heard a story about a, a first-grade class was listening to a teacher who was attempting to, uh, to explain evolution to her, her class. And so the teacher asked a little boy, she said, Tommy, she said, do you see that tree outside? And Tommy said, yes, I do. She said, well, go outside and look up and see if you can see the sky. So Tommy goes outside, he comes back in a few minutes later, and he says, yes, I saw the sky. The teacher said, well, when you were looking at the sky, did you see God? And he said, no. And she said, that's my point. We can't see God because God isn't there, he doesn't exist. 
Now, a little girl that was in the room spoke up and wanted to ask the boy some questions, and so the teacher agreed. And the little girl said to Tommy, she said, Tommy, do you see that tree outside? And Tommy said, yes. He said, Tommy, do you see the grass outside? And Tommy said, yes. And he was getting a little bit, you know, tired of the questions. And uh, the little girl said, do you see the sky? And and, And Tommy said, yes, I saw the sky. Then the little girl said, Tommy, do you see the teacher? And he says, yes, I see the teacher. She said, do you see, do you see her brain? <laughs> and he said, no. And the little girl said, well, then I guess according to what we were taught in school today, she must not have one. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in professing to be wise, they became foolish futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know, when I look at this, and and everything about God's creation points to a creator, I cringe every time I hear, you know, a television show or a program or the Discovery Channel or all of these scientific uh, communities that come out with this information. And, And it's almost like, you know, if you don't have a solid argument, you add hundreds of millions of years to whatever it is you want to say. So it's kind of like, if you don't have an explanation, you go, well, 200 million years ago. And, and you know, if, and if that doesn't sell them, then you add, even it might be 300 million. And you just add as many zeros as you can behind it, and then everybody sits around and on and goes, whoa, 300 million years ago. And it's kind of like, you know, in, in professing to be wise, we become foolish. You know, there's such a design that we see. And it's amazing to me as, you know, as, I've, as I've been ill and as I've gone through you know, all these different tests and going to different doctors. And one of the things that amazes me is that doctors don't go from patient to patient on their knees. And what I mean by that is, is that we are so fearfully and wonderfully made that our bodies are so intricate in how God has created us that every little thing affects something else. And that's why that practice of medicine is such that it's like, you know, if we give you this, it's going to affect that. And if it affects that, we've got to be careful that it doesn't cause this. And if you take this, and that's why we always laugh when we see these commercials about, you know, take this drug and then they give you a list of 30,000 side effects. You know, it's, all, it's so funny. And they read them really fast, like, and you kind of go, well, wait a minute, what was, what was the side effect? What was it again? And it's kind of like, well, but you know, it's, what's the lesser of the two evils? You take this drug and you have these 50 things you have to maybe watch out for. And it's just like, wow. And you know, and, and it just... You know, God says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, and basically saying, that, you know what? Rather than worship God, we'll make our own God. And then they go on, and he talks about the fact that Gentiles are guilty before God because they have perverted God's glory. It says, therefore, notice this. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He says, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, 
committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice such things. And it's very obvious. God says, look, if you choose darkness, then it is going to get dark. And God turned them over. And they went a direction that was, you know, further and further away from God. If you choose to seek God, God will reveal himself. A great illustration of that is the Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip is is called up alongside this chariot, and this man is seeking God, and he's reading the Old Testament, and he doesn't know exactly what he's reading, but yet God brought Philip to him to explain to him the truth of the word of God. And I believe that there is not a person who seeks God that will not find him. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will not be disappointed. Those who are seeking him, God gives us more light. But you know what the bottom line is, is that the majority of people in this world aren't seeking God. They seek darkness. They seek pleasing themselves. They pervert what it is that God has given us. And God says, fine, then I'll just turn you over to your own lusts. And this is the direction that you'll end up going. And so what Paul is doing throughout this letter to the Romans is he's laying out this argument that, you know what? We're all guilty before God. Now, some of us think, and and this will bring us up to where we are in uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Some of us think that, you know what, though? But what about religious people? You know, religious people, I, you know, I hear this oftentimes, say, well, you know, re- religious people are good people. You know, and, and if you have religion, then you've got enough, I mean, you know, to please God. Certainly God is pleased by religious folks. And so what he does is he takes the life of the Jew and he specifically says, here are people who are religious and let me tell you why religious people are guilty before God as well. And so he says, but if you bear the name and it's if and and since it's so, you bear the name of Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, what he's saying is, is that, you know, here it is, you, you, you boast in God, you know his will, you approve the things that are essential, being instructed of the law, you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness, you correct those who are foolish, you're a teacher of the immature, you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore teach, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And as I was reading this, I was reminded of all the religious folks of our day who have a similar condescending attitude. While Paul begins addressing the Jews directly, remember that in present day terms, you know, the Jews represent people who have the Bible today, or what we would call Christians, or people who go to church, or who have the church in their midst, or who have a culture that grew out of the Reformation, and all of these things, and you start to ask the question, well, you know, is that enough to go to church? Is it enough to have the Bible? Is it enough to call yourself a Christian? Is it enough to do these external things? Is that enough to please God, or are we just as guilty as everybody else? Well, in verse 17, it says that they relied upon the law and they boasted in God. 
And so it indicates that what happened was God gave the nation of Israel his laws and entrusted them to him. They were supposed to be a beacon of light to all of the world. They were supposed to be that city that was set on a hill. They were supposed to be the ones that upheld that which was right and that which was wrong. And so they were in the middle of their culture, and they were supposed to be the ones that pointed people to the righteousness of God. And so they became very arrogant in that God would entrust to them, you know, the laws of God. They were, the keepers of the, uh, they were the keepers of the oracles of God. And today, Christians, we've been, granted the knowledge, uh, uh, we've been granted the knowledge of the mysteries of God. And sometimes we can get really arrogant that we know what's right and we know what's wrong. We know how to get to heaven. We know if you don't trust in Christ, his death on the cross, his, his resurrection on your behalf, that you're going to go to hell. I mean, we know because the Bible is very clear and we have those answers. And that's why he goes on to say is that, you know, and here you are, you know, trying to lead the blind, and, you know, and is that what you're doing? Is that what your life is really all about? Their serious problem was they became prideful, and that somehow or another they thought, well, because God chose us, that we're more special than everybody else. And what we have to get away from is this. No one comes to faith in Christ who hasn't been called and chosen by God. And that has nothing to do with you and me and everything to do with the one making the choice. Don't get arrogant because God has called you from darkness to light. Because he has called us from darkness to light so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God who has done so. Why did God choose Israel? The Bible says because he did. They weren't the greatest in number. They weren't the most powerful. They certainly weren't the most righteous. The Bible says that God chose Israel because he chose them. Period. And there was nothing in and of themselves. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Because it's all about him and nothing about us. And he chose us and he entrusted us with the truth of God's word so that we can be a guide to those who live in darkness. So that we can, you know, correct those who are foolish. So that we can be teachers of those who are immature. And yet at the same time, how terrible it was that they didn't do any of that. In fact, they became a stumbling block. And Paul's argument to them is to say, man, no, you were supposed to accomplish God's purpose. And you ended up making it even worse for people around you because they couldn't understand what it was that you stood for. You know, one of the greatest problems among Christians today is the most difficult thing when you speak to missionaries, the most difficult thing that a missionary faces when starting a new work are the people that went before them who had the name Christian. Give you an example. When Livingston tried to preach the gospel in Africa, he had to deal with the fact that the people associated Christianity with the Portuguese who had been slave traders in that part of the world. 
Until recently, the biggest problem missionaries faced in Muslim areas was that Muslims weren't supposed to drink wine, and they associated Christianity with wine merchants who profited by selling a commodity that the Muslims couldn't sell. When people who have the Bible, whether it be a Jew or a Christian, behave in such a way, instead of bringing light, it brings darkness. And so it takes us back to the opening story of the gas company employees, and that's this. We must be careful as believers, followers of Jesus Christ, to live our lives in a manner that leads people to Christ and not turn them away. Ask yourself the question, if people would follow you, would your life lead them into a closer and deeper walk with Christ, or would it confuse them? I mean, how many of us have had that experience in our lifetime where we've come across, you know, and I can think before I came to faith in Christ where I had come in contact with people who professed to be Christian and I would watch their life and hear what they'd say and I would be so confused because basically our lifestyles were very similar. The only difference was is that maybe they went to church for an hour on a Sunday and uh, other than that, all during the course of the week, you know, we pretty much, you know, held our own as far as how we lived. And it was like there was nothing different. And so what we have to be careful as we look at this is, you know, what, what, is, what is our lifestyle saying to people around us? What's the message that we're sending? What is it that we profess to believe? And how does it impact how we live and make daily decisions. See, what Paul's trying to get across to the Jew and also to us today is that, you know what? We have been called and chosen by God for a very specific purpose. And the purpose is to make sure that we represent God in a way that draws people closer to him and doesn't repel them or reject them from him. See, Israel was supposed to go into the world and preach repentance. And that's God's desire today, that all men would repent. The church, God's people, we're to go into the world. We're to reach the world with the word. And we're to call men everywhere to repent, to turn from sin and to turn to God. That's the message that's been entrusted to us that God's will is that men everywhere would repent. And as you look at this, we see that unfortunately, you know, that's not often the case. There is something that is a contradiction. And I want to take a look at those three reasons that the religious are guilty according to this text. And the first thing that we see is very evident, and that is this, is the problem of hypocrisy. He says, you know, since you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, you boast in God, you know as well, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed of the law, you're confident that yourselves are a guide to the blind. Now, just kind of put this into your own, into your own personal situation, that's this. Okay, you're a believer. Okay, you're confident in God. You boast in the, you know, you know the Bible. You know God's will because he reveals his will in his word. And you approve the things that are essential, instructed out of the word of God. And you're confident that you, yourself, are a guide to the blind. That you can help those who don't understand God's truth. You can help them to know God and his truth. He says, and uh, light to those who are in darkness. You're a corrector of the foolish. 
teacher of the immature. That's why we have foundations classes and things like that. Build them up in the faith so you know what you believe and why you believe it and what the Bible teaches. We need to understand and know these things. He says, and then having this law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, listen, do you not teach yourself? And his argument is very simple. Do you teach that you should not steal? Do you steal? Do you teach that you should not commit adultery? Do you commit adultery? You see the hypocrisy of all of this? See, we know right from wrong. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we've got the word of God as a, as a guide for how we're to live. And we go around and we tell people what's wrong before God. You know, what you're doing is wrong before God. And all that God is saying to you and me is this. Listen, you know what? That, that's our responsibility. Because when we expose people to the wrong in their life, it brings about, hopefully, a desire to repent which is to turn from that wrong and to turn and start to do that which is right. And all that God is saying and what Paul was saying to the Jew was this. The reason religious people are guilty is because oftentimes religious people go around telling people what is right and what is wrong and they don't apply it in their own life. It's like, you know, yeah, it's wrong. You shouldn't steal. While they're stealing... Yeah, you know what, you shouldn't you know, commit adultery while well, they're committing some other act of sexual immorality. Yeah, you know what, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And they're guilty themselves. And so what he's saying is, is that God is not mocked by that. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he reaps. He looks at our behavior and says, you can tell people the right thing, but you have got to be living it yourself. And one of the dangers of religion is that people would profess the right thing, but they don't live the right way. They say the right stuff, but it doesn't impact their life. See, the problem with the Jew was that they were possessors of the law, but they didn't practice it. The problem with Christians today is that we possess the complete word of God. But do we practice it? My favorite verse is Ezra 7.10. And Ezra dedicated himself to study the laws of God, to practice them, and then to teach them to others. See, the Christian life is dedication to studying that which is God's truth so that we can then live it out ourselves and then we can teach it to others. Because we will not be disqualified for what we're saying because our life reflects that truth. And it's a very simple argument that he lays out. It's like, hey, if you say all these things, then why are you doing them? If they're wrong, then why do you keep doing the wrong thing? And so God wants us to understand and recognize that, you know what? Hey, we can't be hypocritical if we're going to reach people for the kingdom of God. Take a good hard look at your life. Ask God to examine yourself. What do you really like at work? What do you really like with your friends at school? What do you really like behind closed doors? How do you talk to one another? What are the things that you say? How do you interact with your family? 
How do you interact with your employees if you own a business or your coworkers if you work somewhere? You know, what is it, what's the message that you preach every day without recognizing that you've preached the word? We need to take a good hard look at ourselves so that we're not disqualified by hypocrisy. What you see is what you get. And what you see and what you get better be pleasing to God. The second thing, and the reason that religious folks are guilty, is that they have misplaced trust. Notice in verses 25 through 29. For indeed, circumcision is of value. And he goes on and talks about circumcision if you practice the law, but if you're a transgressor of the law, circumcision has become uncircumcision. And in this particular passage, he's talking to Jews about the outward act, the outward ritual of circumcision. You know, they thought if we did these outward things, that these would make us right before God. And what Paul was saying is this. You know what? Here's God's greatest desire. That our hearts are circumcised. You know, I come from a background, a religious, religious background, that I was taught that if you did the things that a church told you to do, then somehow or another, you would be right with God. Never really sure if you're really right with God, but at least you knew you were better off than if you didn't do the things that they told you to do. So it's kind of like, here, do these things. And they were always outward acts of, of those, you know, you know, you need to be baptized. And you need to have communion. And you need to be confirmed. And you need to, you know, be married in a church. And there's all these lists of things that are all external things. And we get caught up in all that because, you know, sin nature wants to believe that somehow we have a part in our salvation. That we can work our way to heaven. But the Bible says it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so no one can ever boast. And so Paul uses this outward uh, exercise of circumcision to say, you know what? Don't get hung up on doing these external things because God's more concerned about your heart. How's your heart? Where are you at today? Are you one of those people that think, you know, and it's so funny because I'll see people and they'll say, hey, uh, been to church uh, four weeks in a row now. Ooh, ooh, very good. That's, 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 that's marvelous. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, their way of saying, I'm trying. You know, I've been to church four weeks in a row and that's a new record. You know, and, and, uh, and then, or it's like, you know, I've read my Bible three days in a row now. Wow. You are something, you know, and, and, and it's all these external things, and, and God's like, wait, you know, stop playing that game, because it's not about external things, it's about the heart, is your heart right with God, one of the greatest and most beautiful pictures of that, that God has ever given us in his word, is that of the thief on the cross, who had absolutely zero opportunity to do anything external. It was all about his heart. He had a broken and despised heart, a broken and contrite heart that God did not despise. He said, I am getting what I deserve. You are getting what you deserve. This man in the middle has done nothing wrong. He says, don't you even fear God. Jesus, remember me this day when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And he had no opportunity to do anything external, but he had a circumcised heart that was right with God. 
And so he was saying religious people who bank on external rituals and you have misplaced trust, then you're just as guilty as those who don't even do any of these things because you know what? It's all about the heart. You know, we need to believe and then behave. Belief first and then behavior. And then the third and final reason the religious are found guilty before God is in verses one through eight, and we're told it's simply because they just didn't believe God. It says then, what advantage is there? He said, it's great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's like, man, you know what? We got the word of God. We get everything that we need. We have a great advantage over those who don't have the word of God or don't understand the word of God. We've got every advantage. He said, but if some did not believe, their unbelief will nullify the faithfulness, will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Well, it may never be. I mean, the bottom line is that God is still faithful whether we believe God or not. And so what he's saying is, is that even though we can have the word of God, the question is, do you believe it? We've got God's word. Do you believe what it says? Do you believe it in its entirety? Do you believe every portion of it? You know, think about this. If it, God's wrath against people, you know, who have a conscience, they see creation, they're rational beings, they understand moral principles, I mean, the bottom line is we live in a world where people are lost. And everybody is guilty before God. Those who have never heard of Jesus are held accountable by the light that God has given them. They have a conscience. They see creation. They know what is right and wrong inherently because God has given them that understanding. And yet at the same time, they're lost. Religious people think, hey, you know what? Well, I'm religious, and I do all these external things, and that's all that I need to do to be right with God. And God says, you're lost too. And so we live in a world today where God has entrusted to you and I who have come to faith in Christ, he has entrusted us with the mysteries of the knowledge of God. Think about that. You and I who have repented of our sins, who have trusted that Jesus died on the cross for me, for you, who believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, that he is alive today, and have gone to him and placed our faith and trust in him and him alone, have become a child of God to those who believe in his name. We have been entrusted with the knowledge of the mysteries of God. And the greatest mystery is this, why am I here? Where am I going? What's going to happen to me after I die? And we have the road map to heaven. You must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. We live in a world of lost people. And we must never lose sight of the fact that you and I, who have trusted in Christ, have been given the distinct privilege of being able to share that roadmap with everyone that God brings into our presence. My question for you in closing is this. When was the last time 
that you shared with a person who was lost the right directions to be right with God. That's our calling. That's our commission. That's the great commission. And I want to challenge you to consider that you have the greatest information ever given to man. What are you doing with it? We need to be sharing it. We need to be sharing it, folks, like we've never shared it before. And as we see the day drawing near, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of the fact that every one of us are lost. And we thank you that you have chosen to intervene in our lives through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Every one of us are born into the world at enmity with God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. None of us are righteous, no, not one. And outside of the the grace and the mercy that's found at the cross, that empty tomb, we would be all lost for eternity. So God, it's my prayer that we who have trusted in Christ and Him completely for the forgiveness of our sins, been born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts, that we would have a passion and a burden to share this with those who do not know you, that you would give us a renewed passion for those who have lost it, that you would give us a passion for those who may may have never had it, to be able to share the, the knowledge of the mysteries of God. God, that you love this world and you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. May our faith and trust not be in our religion, not be in our efforts, but being in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. And we pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Please stand for our last song. The standard is the cross. When we look to the cross and call upon his name, we will be saved. That's a promise that we do.